Do you serve God or do you just keep some of the rules that we have to keep God off your back? Is God a means to an end or is God the end? Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gaff. Uh, the end of March, we finished what? Let's hit the ground running. Yeah, right. The end of March, we we took a pause on our Roman series. Uh, we had just finished Chapter 7. Uh, April, we had uh, awesome guest speakers. We had both the, the James brothers, and then we had uh, Matt come teach. Uh, so now we're jumping back into, I hope I wasn't here, obviously, for Matt's thing. How was that? The Galatians message, right? Um, and that was awesome. He wanted to do something that would complement Romans. So that, that was a cool idea for, uh, of his. Uh, so we're jumping back in. This week, we're doing Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, this week and next week. Next two weeks, we're doing Romans chapter 8. We broke it in half, and we're going to dissect it. This is like the, the climax, right? This is like the beautiful chapter of Romans. Um, so, what has led us to Romans chapter 8? We're going to do a lightning round review so that we can all be kind of have our minds right in the, in the same place since we haven't talked about Romans in a minute. So, chapter 1, Paul says, Jesus Christ is what saves you. He's the person. He is the way, right? He's not leading you to the way. He is the way. Jesus Christ himself, he is the gospel. He is salvation, right? So, that's the first thing we see in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 and 2, uh, we get into why we need to be saved. Like, what are the reasons? He starts with, well, because your sin brings wrath. You need to be saved from that. Then we go into uh, agreeing with God's morals doesn't save you. So just because you're like, yeah, everything God said is right, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't cut it. You can agree with God all day. If you haven't submitted or surrendered to him, you're not, like, you're not saved, right? And so he says, great, you're a moralist. That that's not good enough, right? And then he moves on and he says, also, just being Jewish isn't good enough, right? Just because you're one of the chosen people ethnically, right, doesn't mean that you are actually in God's people who have been saved, right? And then we move on to chapter 3, and the obvious question that comes after the end of chapter 2 is, well, then what good is being Jewish? What's the point? What's the advantage? Why even Why even want to be Jewish, right? And so then we go uh, he answers that question, and he says, well, first of all, everyone else was still guessing what God was going to do to save us and guessing what God even wanted from us. You guys had it. You were given God's word. It said, here's the things that are wrong. Here's the things you need to be saved from. Here's what's required of you that you can't ma- you know, measure up to, and here's my plan to fix it. Right. So it, there's a huge advantage to being Jewish because they were the first people to have God's plan. Right. Uh, we see that that plan in chapter three he says that plan was always to save by grace through faith. Always, it, it was never going to be anything different. Which leads us right into chapter four, where he goes, "Look at Abraham, the guy that you again." He's talking to the Jews in. Uh, he's talking to the Jewish sect in Rome, and he's saying, "You guys are all held up about Abraham, Abraham, Abraham." <clears throat> but Abraham was saved by grace through faith. It's the same thing, right? And so he makes this point: like even the guy you hold to proves my point. He goes into chapter 5 and he says, therefore, having been justified, he says, therefore, 
I'm just going to read it because the, the first verse in chapter 5 really sums it up. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? The whole, he, he, he's kind of reaching a conclusion point right there, right? He's gone through why we need the gospel, and he's gone through why, why all these alternatives don't work, and he's saying, we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. That's it. So we get to this summary point in chapter 5, and then he's going to say in chapter 5, he's going to say, we've been at war with God since Adam. Since Adam brought sin into the world, he sold us all down the river into slavery, at war with God, hostile to God. And in the same way that Adam was the one person that sold us all into uh, slavery and, at, and put us at war with God, Christ makes a way for peace, Sing- singularly, right? And so I called that, I talked a lot about Adam and Adam 2.0 in that message, right? And so Jesus fixes what Adam broke. And then we get into chapter 6, says... Um, Given the peace that you've been offered, if you've accepted it, if you're at peace with God, then are you going to go on living like you're at war with God? You're just going to continue in sin, continue to to fight against God, right? And then we get into chapter 7, and we get to this idea about being bound to Christ. He says, we die to our flesh, uniting uniting ourselves to Christ's death. We die to our sin, to the, the, the temporal part of the world, and we are united to Christ in that death, and then we are also united to Christ in His resurrection, right? So we we united in His death, which is what makes us able to participate, being united in His resurrection, right? Because it's all about being in Christ, bound to Christ. Uh, and, he, and then he says that we will live eternally united to, uh, to God, uh, I'm sorry, eternally united to Christ in heaven, in uh, 7, verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of letter. Now this is, a, this, this is one of my favorite verses in Romans because he says, the newness of spirit. Right. So the letter of the law is what the, the Pharisees were doing when Jesus shows up. They're like, well, we can, you know, we can keep the law, we can, we can apply it and really kind of earn our way into heaven. And he says, okay, the letter of the law, not the point. The regulations, you're missing it. said the spirit of the law, the the newness in that spirit is loving others, right? And I tell this to you guys all the time, time, what is the most loving thing you can do for someone else? Point them to God. Point them, introduce them to Jesus Christ. So, So he says, we serve in newness that glorifies God and points to him. In the end of chapter seven, he says, your your flesh and your spirit are at war. See, there's a difference in, your mind and your actions and your desires, right? Like there's this kind of war going on. It's a really great moment if you untangle just that last part of chapter seven because Paul gets so real. And Paul, who we just, we put on a pedestal. It's like, well, Paul, like the greatest Christian that ever lived. And he's like, I'm constantly sinning. I'm always doing the things I don't want to do. And then I'm not doing the things I want to do, right? And what he's showing is this conflict between his dead flesh, his fleshly earthly self, and his new spirit that God has given him that God has made alive and is fighting back against that, right? And he's showing that these are at war with each other even inside of him. Now, if that was too fast, they are all on the podcast, right? So if you wanna if you wanna go back, if you missed any part, that was the lightning round catch up, so we're all kind of caught up to chapter eight. But the point is, um, we have that all available. So if you if you if you weren't here for most of the Roman series or whatever, if you missed one, you can go back and and they're all on the podcast. Okay. So chapter eight. Chapter 8 is part summary, 
and part answering this question. What is the point? So what, Paul? We've heard everything you have to say. What, what are you trying to get across? What is the, the singular message that this Romans 1 through 8 thing is about? And remember, if, I, if you remember back, I told you that 1 through 8 is really just Paul's most elaborate gospel presentation, right? 9 through 11, he's dealing with specifically with the nation of Israel uh, or the Jewish people. And then 12 through 16, he's going to do more application. He's going to do a lot of like, here's how you go out and live this way, right? Go out and live what you've been what you've seen in the gospel. But one through eight is, this is what the gospel is. This is what it does, this is how it saves us. This is what Jesus did, right? So eight, we're gonna summarize everything that's gone before and we're gonna say, what's the point? What are we trying to get at, okay? So I've called this entire series, Bound to Christ. The Bible constantly tells us that to be saved, we have to be in Christ or united with Christ, right? Um, that we have to dwell in Him and Him in us. We have to remain in Him and Him in us. We have to abide in Him, right? So these are all terms of this connection that we have to have with Christ to have actually been saved, received the gospel. So the question is, what are you bound to in life? Because that will determine where you end up. The things that you bind yourself to now, they have a profound effect on where you're going, Right? The Bible tells us plain and simple that if you're bound to sin, the wages of sin is death, right? It's the most cut and dry thing. But you can even get into the nuance of this. That's like the broad term, right? But if you're bound to, you know, loser friends, you're going you're gonna to become like who you hang out with, right? If you're bound to Christ, hopefully you're becoming more Christ-like. If you're bound to alcohol, you're going to go where alcohol's going to take you. If you're bound to a, a, a relationship that's not honoring God, um, you're like there are consequences for who you bind yourself to in life and what you bind yourself to. And uh, you know they, they tell they tell people who are addicted to things the first thing they have to do is recognize they're addicted because what do, what do we always tell ourselves? And we do this with everything. Well, I it's not that big of a deal. I can stop whenever I want to. Right? Have you ever tried that with like whatever your biggest, you know, kind of hang up sin is? Like I can, I can stop. <coughs> Tell me how well that works for you. <coughs> so the question is, are you bound to Christ? And, and, and also the connected question that is, are you bound to the body? Are you bound to the body of Christ? Because here's the thing, the Bible is going to tell us in several places. Uh, Colossians, uh, Peter's going to tell us this in, in I think, 1 Peter. Uh, if you're not connected to the body of believers, it's a good chance you're not actually connected to Christ because Christ is the head of the body, right? So Paul is going to start chapter 8 by talking about the testimony of what we're bound to. You can look at what you're bound to and it's going to testify where you're going, right? So if you're bound to something in the Spirit, then there's testimony that the Spirit is is taking you to eternal things. But if you're bound to the flesh, if you're bound to sin, then that's going to have a testimony that it's taking you somewhere else, that it's taking you away from God. Okay, so look with me. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay. So this, this is the beginning of what is the point. And I want you to see that the point of the gospel, it's wrapped up in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in, those who are bound to Christ. No condemnation. It's settled. That, that issue is put to rest. And, and the summary that we're going to get in chapter 8 is basically expounding on this idea that Paul, he's, he spent seven chapters getting to this point where he says, do you get it yet? The gospel is what makes you not condemned. It what, it's what rescues you from being under wrath. See, now I want, you to, I want you to see something we do. Legalism is what leaves us crippled in fear that verse 1 is not true. Verse 1 is the answer. It is the summary. If you are a believer and you sin, you are still not condemned. You are not earning your salvation every day. It has been settled. Now, there's a difference, right? And that's where the tension comes in. The difference is there's this whole segment of Christianity or Christendom, at least, that has this kind of idea of like, well, we can do whatever we want, right? And Paul specifically addresses that. He's like, oh, you can just live at war with God because you're at peace with God. That doesn't make any sense, right? But the point is, if you are living in the Spirit and your flesh still sins, you are no more condemned than you were before that. The condemnation has been removed from you. Uh, look at verse chapter 6, verse 11. It says, So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive, to God in Christ Jesus. That's the bottom line. And, and if you're looking for this perfection, this perfectionism that comes with legalism, again, go visit the end of chapter 7 where Paul's like, I, I'm still doing the stuff I don't want to do. But what's the operative part of that? He's doing things he doesn't want to do. See, believers sin still, but they repent of it. They they grieve sin. They don't want to hurt the Holy Spirit, right? That's the difference between somebody who just goes, yeah, you know me, I'm just, that's some, so, you know, sometimes a sin, no big deal, God's forgiven me. That person's just, it's cheap grace, right? That person wants the free pass, right? So, um, verse 2, verse 2 he says, uh, um, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. If you look at seven chapter uh, chapter seven verse six, it says, "But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound." Okay, so what is the key to law? At one point, the question is asked in Romans: Is something wrong with the law? Is the law messed up? He says, "Well, no. How could the law be messed up? The law is the description of how we should all be behaving. It's the standard, right?" Here's the key, though: the law was not given to us to save us something for us to accomplish. The law was given to us to stir up the reality in us that we are utterly sinful, right? Because where the law uh, where the law shows you all the regulations that exist, you see how many places you're transgressing, transgressing against them, right? So we talked about there's this idea of like sin, sin before the law. Paul kind of paints this picture of like it was just this hatred of God. It's like people either hated God or they didn't hate God. And, and they, they kind of could almost sum it up like that. And when the law comes, there's this explosion of like, oh, 
I thought I was on God's team, and I'm looking at this list of rules realizing I am messing up everywhere. I am constantly in sin, right? And the law was given to us to show us our need to be saved. So verse 3, he says the law could not accomplish salvation. It only stirred it up. So what did accomplish my salvation? God sent his son, and I want you to see this phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Okay, that phrase right there. You've heard me say this before. Jesus had to be 100% human because humans owed God. He had to assume full humanity because we were the only ones that owed God something, right? But Jesus also had to be 100% God because only God had the power to pay himself back, right? Only someone that met both of those criteria could be an adequate sacrifice. That phrase right there is very intentional by Paul because it's surrounded by two times where he says in the flesh or sinful, uh, sorry, he says, um, yeah, uh, was through one through the flesh. And then at the end he says sin in the flesh, right? Those both times he's talking about the corrupted nature of our flesh. But when he says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's saying he resembled our humanity He even resembled our humanity in its weakness, but he never had sin. He was never corrupted. He never made a mistake. He never defied God, rejected God, spat in God's face, right? So that that phrase there is very important for us to see. And that one phrase has summed up the reality that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. Okay, look at verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Okay. So in verse in verse 4 and 5, I want you to see there's a transition. The transition is from justification to sanctification. Okay? So in verse 4, we see justification. The law required something. It required perfection. And that requirement for perfection is fulfilled by Christ, thereby providing a justification for us. Now, here's the other thing. I've told you guys, what's the difference between justification and sanctification experientially? One happened first. That's the bottom line. Because the reality is every time that you experience your sanctification, it is again, the encountering of the gospel that is redeeming you, that is changing you. So at some point, that happened the very first time. That's justification. Every time after that, it's the same thing that's happening. It's just not the first time, right? So there is, uh, there is here in, in verse 4, both a sense of justification in that the law required something, but also a sense of sanctification in that our ability to walk in the spirit of the law is a requirement. Okay, so we are required as believers who have been made alive in the Spirit to then walk in the Spirit, right? And that is sanctification. That is the process by which God is making us more like Christ, right? And just in case I'm getting ahead of anybody, justification, right? Being made right with God. Sanctification, being made like God, right? But justification is the first step of being made like God. It's the first time that you're made like God, you're made right with Him, and then you continually are made more and more like Him, right? So the key there is we see both of those in verse 4, but there's a solid uh, switch in verse 5 to what what I'm going to say is not just a sanctification emphasis, 
but an assurance emphasis. I told you guys a long time ago, justification is the objective truth that God has saved you. If you've been saved, if you've been justified, that never changes. Subjective, the subjective aspect is your sanctification because that's what lets you see it. How do I know I've been justified? Because I'm being sanctified. And sanctification isn't something I can look back on and go, well, I was sanctified that one time, right? Because it's subjective. It happens right now. I have to be experiencing it, right? And the reason that that's, the reason that's important is because it's only a, an assurance that I've objectively been saved if it's currently happening, right? That's why we tell you, I tell you guys all the time, you can't look back at that time I prayed a prayer when I was seven. That doesn't cut it. That may have objectively been the, the moment, but how do you know right now? And the Bible doesn't let you rest on that because then what would you do? Exactly what we're talking about. You would go, well, I'm already saved. I can do whatever. Just run rampant. Because you'd have this moment that you'd be like, well, God said the prayer thing, right? Like the magic words, right? So our assurance is subjective. It's happening in the moment. Um, and, and really the question is this, are you writing off the evil in your life, giving it a pass, or are you repenting of it? Are you, uh, and, and here's the deal, we repent out of a gratitude that God has saved us. Why? Because verse one says, there's no condemnation. It's been settled. So I'm not repenting over and over again because, well, now I'm, I'm sinned again, I'm condemned again. No, I'm repenting because God saved me and how could I, how could I hurt my Savior by doing the thing that strikes back at Him? That's why we repent. Uh, I've started using this phrase and I think it's really helpful to see. If you're saved, your relationship with God is never under threat. But your fellowship with God can be. Right? No, like, if, if I'm your brother in Christ and you punch me in the face, we're not going to stop being brothers in Christ, but our fellowship's going to be broken for a minute. Right? And so the, the reality is you can break fellowship with God, but that doesn't change your relationship with Him. That will never be under threat. Okay? Okay. Um, so look with me at verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life, be, uh, is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay. I want you to see the difference. We've got two things. We've got the mind focused on the flesh, and we've got the mind focused on the spirit. The mind focused on the flesh is at war with God. It's hostile to God. It leads to death, right? Because it's not like you're going to win that fight, right? You're at war with God. You're going to be the one that dies, right? So, uh, and then and then here's the deal. You can't glorify God. You can't intentionally glorify God or lead people to God because you're at war with Him. That's the mindset on the flesh, right? And then over here, you have the mindset on the spirit. This this mind is at peace. And I want you to see another word that's that's included. There's There's a couple things here. The, the mind that is at peace with God, it also has true joy, right? Because you ever been around somebody you're, you're in an argument with? There's tension, right? There's not a lot of joy and peace because you're like, I'm mad at that person. Look at them over there, smug eating those crackers. I, like, like that person annoys you no matter what they're doing, right? So the reality is when you're at war with God, there's no escape from that tension. 
That's following you around, right? That's being under wrath. But when we're at peace with God, we have joy. We also are called a friend of God. And I want you to see how big this is. If you are at peace with God, that happened because he extended you peace while you were at war with him, right? So while you were actively hostile to him and spitting in his face, he made it possible for you to be a friend, be at peace with him. That's what brings us life. And once we've met God, once we have, um, once we are in a relationship with God, we can then introduce people to God, right? I uh, use the, the, I got to find a new player, but I use the Tom Brady analogy. Um, you can know of Tom Brady. You can know all Tom Brady's stats. You can even tell people they should go learn about Tom Brady, but you can't introduce people to Tom Brady because you don't know him. You haven't met him. You don't have his phone number. You can't call him up and hang out. If you're relationship with God is that you know about him, you can't introduce people to him. But if your relationship with God is personal, if you've met him, if you can talk to him, you can therefore introduce people to him, right? So that is how we glorify God. Um, so the, the key, right, is what are we bound to? I said you could be bound to alcohol, you could be bound to uh, a bad relationship. The goal is to be bound to Christ. I've told you guys the story more than once of the time that I wrote a bull. And if you know anything about bull riding, they strap you, they strap that hand down to the bull. Um, I was bound to that animal. And there are things in life that it is terrifying to be tied to, right? And there's definitely a moment when you're very happy to not be tied to that bull. Uh, it's when you're flying through the air. Uh, and the, the beautiful thing about it is the analogy goes even further because the bull they tell you the, the number one rule is hit the ground running because the bull will try to hurt you. Your sin, if you are bound to it, first of all, you can't control it. It's taking you for a ride. And when it finally gets the better of you, it's coming for you. It's going to try to hurt you. Sin is always coming after you. And if you bind yourself to it, it is, uh, it, it's easy to have an illusion of security when you're sitting on that bull right up until that gate opens. And then it's just pure, unadulterated fear. There are things in this life you don't want to be bound to. So we see the, the, we see the testimony of, we see the testimony of what I'm bound to, what, what I bind myself to. Now we're going to look at uh, what is dwelling in me or with me. Okay. What can you tell about me if you come to my house? Okay. Let's, let's put it like this. There was a time when I lived alone and you could come to my house and the first thing you saw when you walked into the front room was a pool table. And if you walked further back, uh, there was a kitchen window curtain that was a pirate flag. <laughs> and there was not a green bean in sight. Okay, That's what you found when you came into my house. And it told you about who was dwelling there. Right Now what? I'm married. If you come over to my house now, there's no pool table. There's no pirate flag window curtain. There's still no green beans. <laughs> but when you get in the house, you can tell if you saw it before and you saw it after, you can tell there's a difference of who is dwelling there. Right? See, when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, it changes uh, things in our life in a way that's obvious, that you can see. So who I let dwell with me or in me, it affects me. Look at verse 9. However, 
You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Okay. Listen to me. The Spirit cannot dwell in you at peace with sin. The Spirit cannot dwell alongside sin in your life and just be comfortable and you be comfortable. I mean, listen, that pirate flag and my wife were not going to dwell at peace forever. Like one of them was going to go and the pirate flag doesn't cook. So So the pirate flag had to go. Listen, here's the deal. When you have the Holy Spirit in your life and it does not dwell alongside your sin, that is called conviction. It is making you uncomfortable. It is putting pressure on you. And it is trying to drive the sin out of your life. It is trying. And listen, the Holy Spirit, he's not content with like, um, you know, you going, you can have run of the house, just not that closet, right? It, it doesn't work like that, right? Because whatever's in that closet is not, it's, it's an enemy to him. Yeah. And by the way, it's hurting you. And he cares about you so much, he's not going to leave it alone. He doesn't want to let that thing dwell in that closet, right? He is trying to root out the things that you are hurting yourself with. The question for for me is, do you not have conviction about sin in your life? Because if you are not convicted about sin in your life, you need to ask yourself if the Spirit is dwelling with you. Verse 10 uh, Christ's right standing. So that right, that word righteousness there, we see um, different uses of the word righteousness in Romans. Um, this righteousness is specifically referring to Christ's right standing. Christ's right standing with God is what allows us to be made alive. It's what allows us to have right standing with God. Um, and then we have this warring of the Spirit uh, with your flesh that is evidence, it's evidence that you are saved. Right, because your flesh is going to continue to war against God until the day you die and are made perfect in Him. Right, so the key is the non-believers they just have their flesh and it's doing whatever it wants. But when the Spirit has been made alive in you, your spirit has been revived and is now joined in Christ, it begins to war with your flesh. Right, and so part of what Paul's describing at the end of chapter seven. He's saying, yes, I'm still doing some things in my flesh I wish I wasn't doing, but ultimately I hate them. They're not what I want to do. The Spirit is rooting those things out, is warring against them, and that is an assurance. That's how we know that we're saved. Are you just making excuses for sin? You're just writing it off? Just like, well, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. Because that, like... You doing living however you want all week long and coming to church is not Christianity. That's not how this works. Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so I told you the big key of chapter 8 is going to be this. So what, Paul? So what? What are we talking about here? Okay, here's the key. I tell you guys all the time that it's important that Christ came back from the dead because otherwise he's probably still paying for his own sins, right? Because you can die, but you can't come back, 
right? So if Christ died and didn't come back, I don't know that it worked, right? That's the Christ side of why the resurrection is important, but there's also a God side of why the resurrection is important. What hope do I have if God can't bring me back? If God can't resurrect me to life in him for eternity, what is the point of all this? And Paul, Paul starts in verse 1, he says, there is no condemnation. It has been settled in those who are in Christ. And beyond that, it's not just neato gang. It's now when I die, I can be brought back to live in eternity with God in peace, right? So if, if I don't have that hope that God has the power, that God's spirit can raise me from the dead, what are we doing? Why are we here at all, right? This is why Paul says, uh, if the resurrection isn't true, we're to be pitied more than all men. Is that That's what our faith hinges on, is the reality that Jesus came back proving that he was God and God has power over life and death. That is the key element. Are you letting sin dwell in you or does it bother you? Does it, does it hurt you to see the sin in your life? So we've seen the testimony of what's dwelling with you, the testimony of what you're bound to. Now let's look at the testimony of the Spirit in your life. Paul has spent seven chapters saying unite with Christ, participate in if you unite, if you unite with Christ, you will participate in the life of Christ. Right? You will be, uh, you will be able to partake in eternal life with Jesus. So, what does life look like now that assures me that I have eternal life later? Right? So, I, I tell you guys that if you're a Christian, eternity starts now. All that's going to happen is that the eternal part of you that has been brought to life will then continue into heaven where it, there will be no more of the fleshly part that, that is tearing you down, right? But the reality is, if you're a, if you're a believer, your eternal life, because what is eternal life? It, heaven's not a location, right? We will be at a location, but heaven is being in the presence of the Lord. Perfect connection with God. That is what gives us all satisfaction. That's the reason, I tell you guys, that's the reason that water quenches thirst. It's the reason that food uh, fills our stomach. It the reason there's any satisfaction in the world is God's grace, it's His presence, it's His reality, and when we get to heaven, it will be that perfected. We will have a perfect uh, sense of relationship with Him, unhindered, and perfect satisfaction in that. But if we are saved, the, the not perfected part of that starts now. Okay, look at, look at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters... We are, under ob we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Paul says, if, you, if your flesh is living, right? Now what he means by that is, is, is your flesh running the show, right? If your flesh is unhindered, it's in charge, you're going to die. If you're worried about your temporary life and your flesh, you are going to die in the end. But he says, if you're putting the flesh to death, if the flesh is not in charge, if you're mortifying it, then you will live. Now, here's the thing. What is the point of being worried about this whole life, this whole temporary portion, just to end up dead? Like, if you know that that's the end result, why would you focus on here and now knowing that this ends in death 
when you could be focused on eternal life and get it, live, actually be there. Now, I want you to see that this is not works-based, okay? Jesus himself says, whoever would save his life must lose it, right? Um, I want to read to you guys from 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 26. It says, therefore... I run in such a way as not to run aimlessly. I box in such a way as to avoid hitting air, but I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here's the reality. Paul understood that the only way he knew he was saved was if he knew he was saved right now. Right? Now, that doesn't mean we live in a fear of earning our salvation where we have to do all these works. It means that every time we begin to slip into sin that looks the opposite of who God has made us to be in the Spirit, that should be jarring. That should cause us to go, I can't, I can't be over here because at best I'm uncertain if I'm saved when I'm acting this way. And so he talks about bringing his body under strict control. He's not earning his salvation he is just being assured of it. He's, he are, has already received that there is no condemnation. And yet he continues to live in a way that shows him that that is the reality in his life at all times. Right? The reason that we have this existential and constant crisis of faith in our, in our communities is because we, we chalk it up to just this kind of like <sighs> milk toast list of like, you know, I, well, I open my Bible every now and again, and I memorize John 3.16, and I said that prayer one time, and I'm generally at church. Like, you know, I mean, there, there are people all over the world doing that exact same level of energy. Actually, even some places doing more of that in other religions. So it's not some, it's not some game of effort. It's not some game of just kind of checking some blocks. It is, have you been saved? How do you know? Because it will change your life every moment. You will see the growth. You will see the Spirit testifying with your spirit as you are joined with it. Look at verse, uh, look, start in verse 14 again. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, it says, led by the Spirit. Uh, led by the Spirit means you must be a child of God, okay? You've got two sides of this. You've got the side of slavery. Okay, think about slavery for a second. Slavery, you are oppressed, you're abused, you don't gain anything, and you're fearful. You're always going to be fearful of your master, of whatever you are enslaved to, right? And then he paints an, an opposite picture with God. He says, you have a spirit of adoption. What does adoption imply? You are loved like his own son. You have been brought in. And he says, uh, look at verse 17. It says, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You are adopted, loved, the same way that God loves Jesus, and you are, you are now getting the same inheritance that Jesus gets, eternal life in community with the Father, that peace and that joy. 
it is a total opposite place of slavery. Adoption is not slavery. I want you to think about this. Slaves don't view their masters as caring fathers, but believers cry out to God as their own father. We're told to look to Him and cry out to Him. That, that phrase, Abba, Father, it's describing somebody who is leaning on God, who is crying out to God to be given what they need, right? Slaves don't have, they have an, they, a slave can maybe have a certain level of expectation of just being sustained, or at least until their use wears out. But a child leans on their parents for everything they need. And, and keep in mind, whatever your perception of your own parents are, God is the perfect father. He does not fall short in any way on what a father should be. And it says, God has given his children a gift, the spirit to lead them and testify to who they are. I want you to keep in mind that the spirit is, is, a, is a gift that testifies that you're a child of God. He doesn't give that gift to people that aren't his children. As soon as he has adopted you, you receive his himself into your life and he begins to have community with you. That's the peace I'm talking about, right? Like, here's a question. When you pray, you feel like you're praying at war with God? Now, it's possible that you just have a sin that he's trying to root out of you. That's that conviction, right? But have you ever had true, peaceful time in God's presence? Because if that's the case, if you've spent time with your loving Father, growing to know Him, enjoying Him, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you can do that, non-believers can't. Non-believers cannot be in a place where they taste and see that the Lord is good. That is something that only happens when you are a child of God's. Verse 17 says, If children, heirs, and co-heirs with Christ... Um, listen, I want you to understand that we have this thing about how we have this like complex that the enemy wants us to sit with. Okay, yes, you do not deserve to be saved. You do not deserve to be adopted. Okay, but here's the thing. What kind of a parent like would adopt a kid like and then just lord that over them forever? Just like, huh? I shouldn't have ever adopted you. I'll, I'll just send you back. It's like a Harry Potter situation. Like, here's the thing. After you've been adopted, the reality is you didn't deserve to be adopted. But after God has brought you in and made you his own, he lavishes you with love. You can expect that from him. Now, uh, don't, don't mishear me. I'm talking health and wealth gospel, right? I'm just talking about the presence of the Lord. The most satisfying and fulfilling thing that you could ever have, God wants to give you in excess in excess, he wants to give you himself. And that happens, and you don't have to spend the rest of your Christian walk going, oh gosh, I just I don't even deserve to like read my Bible or worship. No, if you've been adopted, yeah, we've established the fact that, that by his grace you've been adopted. Now let him love you. Let him show you the fact that there's no condemnation. Let him build this relationship with you that is based on his unconditional love. Let it change your life. Is your life set on physical, temporal, or fleshly things, or is it set on eternity? See, in the end of verse 17, it says, 
suffer now and get eternal glory later. And I want to talk to you about that word suffer. Do you know that resisting temptation is suffering for, for the name of Christ? That's literally, it's that simple, right? We, I think we just like, we like shotgun this out into space. It's like, has to be like martyrdom. Like we're, we don't live in a world where, like no one tried to stop me from getting to church today. And I walked. So it's like, like I'm not, I'm not in danger from persecution just to be in this building and worship God. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the simple reality of resisting sin in your own life because you love the Lord. Not because you're trying to accomplish some goal of perfection, but simply because you love your Heavenly Father. That is suffering. Think about this. It's easier to give in to temptation. As a matter of fact, the suffering of temptation is over the second you give in. Now you got to deal with shame. It's a whole different thing, right? But, but it is much harder to resist temptation all the way through. That's why what Jesus did was so amazing because Jesus resisted temptation to the max. I don't, I don't, I don't even know that I've ever withstood that amount of pressure. And Jesus, I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's bursting blood capillaries in his forehead. He's so stressed. Like, you talk about suffering, and what was he doing? What was he, what was he suffering for in that moment? He was submitting himself to God's will. That was the suffering. He was saying, I'm going to do this your way no matter what. That is suffering for the cause of Christ. James says, pure and undefiled religion is that you remain unstained from the world and you visit widows and orphans in their distress. Listen, remaining unstained from the world is suffering. It's hard to do. Visiting orphans, like caring for other people. You, if you, listen, if you're caring for other people, you think you're like you're meeting that criteria and you're never inconvenienced, like you're never put out, I, I, I guarantee you you're not doing enough. And again, not to earn something, I'm just saying it is inconvenient to care for other people constantly. It's also incredibly gratifying because you see the love of Christ developing in you for the people that he has given you to care for. Do you serve God or do you just keep some of the rules that we have to keep God off your back? Is God a means to an end or is God the end? Right? Because I don't use God so that I can have a good day or get into this place called heaven where the streets are gold. God is heaven. God is eternal life. The relationship is the end. Right? I want to be in relationship with the Lord. So the question about this first part of chapter 8 is, what's the testimony of your life? What are you bound to? What are you dwelling with? What does your life look like? Right? Because think about where we started. We started with there's no condemnation. That's the whole point. That's the hope. And then he says, okay, now that there's no condemnation, you understand that. How do you know you got it? Look at the testimony of your life. Does the Spirit testify with your spirit that you and Him are on the same team? Next week, we're going to cover what is probably the most encouraging passage in all of Scripture. We're going to look solely at the work of God, and, he, and we're going to see Paul say, there is nothing 
in all of creation, in all of existence, that can stop God from saving you and loving you. But the question is, are you living in that spirit that is saving you and loving you? Or are you living as someone at war with God? Someone hostile? Someone without peace? Look at your life this week and ask yourself, what's what's the testimony of, of who I am? Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.